This is the Green Street News. Patty and Doug Wood and our network of experts with your weekly update on environmental health. Welcome back. On today's show, we're going to talk about the invasion of New York City by thousands and thousands of giant 30-foot steel structures that house all kinds of new technology being installed despite the growing opposition from residents. Some are being constructed right in front of people's apartment windows. It's an amazing and frightening story, and we'll talk with a lawyer who is spearheading the effort to bring some sanity to this issue. That story and Patty with the week's headlines all coming up on this edition of Green Street News. Stay with us. Okay, Patty, so what happened in the world of environmental health this week? Is there any good news? It's hard to find good news, but I find really interesting articles that I'd like to share. So this one was actually from the National Geographic, uh, written by Craig Welch, and the title is Nature is Out of Sync, and That is Reshaping Everything Everywhere. Timing is everything in nature. Every important ecological process lives and dies by a clock. Flowering, egg-laying, breeding, migration. It's as true in Mongolia as it is in the Arabian Sea or a Costa Rican rainforest. Centuries of evolution honed these patterns, and now climate change is recalibrating them. And that is reshaping life for almost everything. In every ocean and across every continent, seasons are in flux. Earlier warmth, delayed cold, and shifts in the frequency and fierceness of precipitation are toying with established rhythms in both predictable and unexpected ways. Well, you can see it's warm here. We didn't even have a winter this year. We had we had a few days of winter very late in the yeah. season, like a couple days before spring. Yeah, yeah. That was, and, that, that, and that's been it. That's it. Changes are being discovered almost everywhere scientists look. The timing of leaf appearance and leaf dropping has already shifted dramatically across more than half the planet. Hmm. I have to say that again, because that's really important. Okay, the timing of leaf appearance and leaf dropping has already shifted dramatically across more than half of the planet. All right. Okay. Humpback whales in the Gulf of Maine are gathering 19 days later than they once did. In North Dakota's Red River Valley, scientists found 65 of 83 bird species arriving earlier, some by as much as 31 days earlier. South Carolina's dwarf salamanders are arriving at breeding grounds 76 days late. That's a lot, 76 days. And 31 days for bird species migrating? What's harder to grasp is the severity of the consequences for plants, animals, and us. If everything shifted in the same direction and by roughly the same amount, our new calendar might prove insignificant. As with daylight savings time, we'd muddle through together. But that's not how nature works. Too many patterns are shifting at the same time, each influenced by countless others, which are themselves also in motion. It's everything, everywhere, all at once. Even beings that don't appear to be changing are seeing their world change around them. Snowshoe hares, Siberian hamsters, collared lemmings, and long-tailed weasels all turn white in winter as a form of protective camouflage in snow. Now they're often out of sync with their surroundings. Many are increasingly seen with bright white bodies crouched in green forests or brown brush or on yellow tundra. 
That's because snow is arriving later and yeah. melting earlier. But yeah. their color transition is triggered by seasonal shifts in daylight, which, of course, isn't changing at all. They're setting ducks, these poor things, that are bright white because they're supposed to be bright white to camouflage them, and there's no snow. But I think this last line is really important. That's yeah. because snow is arriving later and melting earlier, but their color transition is triggered by seasonal shifts in daylight, mm -hmm. which, of course, mm -hmm. isn't changing mm -hmm. at all. Wow, that's remarkable. Yeah, I think that was a yeah. fascinating, fascinating that's article. That's a long, yeah, we should just say that's a very long article, and you should pick up a copy of uh, National Geo or subscribe online and, and read the whole article in beautiful yeah. pictures. National and Geo is, is covering <clears throat> climate change, and they've been covering it for like three decades yeah. already. Yeah. They got in early, and they have done a really good job. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, we lived with National Geo when we were growing up. It might be a great thing for you to do for your kids and get them off their screens and just get a subscription to National Geo. Yeah. It's got fabulous pictures and easy to read and understand stories. Yeah. It's real stuff. Good. Okay, what else you got? Okay, so here's um, an article that was actually published in a law journal from dolmanlaw.com, and it is entitled Artificial Turf Cancer Lawsuits. Oh boy, here we go. Artificial turf was first developed in the 1960s in the North Carolina Research Triangle. It was very quickly implemented in 1964 and first installed in a recreation area at the Moses Brown School in Providence, Rhode Island. Since then, artificial turf has been installed in sports fields across the United States. And the latest number is about 16,000 plus fields. Wow. have been installed wow. in across the United States. All right. What makes artificial turf so resilient and desired by athletic and recreational organizations is its makeup of many durable synthetic substances. The individual blades of artificial grass are made of nylon, polypropylene, or polyethylene fibers that are woven with yarn fibers. These blades of grass are woven into a backing that can be made of perforated felt, latex, polyester, or polyethylene. Following this top layer are several additional layers of additional synthetic materials. So here's the layering process for artificial turf. You have okay. sand, rubber-coated sand, and then crumb rubber, right, which is mm -hmm. ground-up re recycled tires, right. and then plastic pellets. So this is the second part of this article, and that's really about the toxicity of artificial turf. One of the primary issues with artificial turf is that the infill layer is often composed of crumb rubber that is made up of ground-up recycled tires. Recycling is usually a good thing, but tire rubber is far from safe to use as a material that people come into close and frequent contact with. The small rubber pieces made from ground-up tires and used in artificial turf have been tested and shown to contain a number of dangerous substances that have been classified as carcinogens. A study conducted by Yale University in 2019 showed that of the 306 chemicals present in crumb rubber, 52 are classified as carcinogens. Crumb rubber used in these fields has also been shown to contain heavy metals that also increase cancer risk, such as lead, chromium, zinc, cadmium, and manganese. You know, Patty, if you found out that there was a chemical toxic spill at your, you know, your kid's high school and they listed all these chemicals, you would expect to see 
you the know, school that, closed. You expect to see that yellow tape. Do not, right. you know, do right. not enter. Guys in hazmat suits. Hazmat but suits what we removing do, we, it. We send the kids out to play. Right. On well, it. there's even more. Crumb rubber has also been shown to present a respiratory risk since the small pieces of rubber release harmful gases when they heat up in the sun. The small particles that inevitably break off of crumb rubber that has been through the grinder can also be inhaled under some circumstances. It is estimated that the average sports field made from artificial turf contains up to 40,000 ground up tires. You know, you see, if you've ever seen a stop action yes. photograph of yes. a, you know, a soccer player or a football player or yeah. anybody, you see the dust. It's not just the, the particles that the come up. Pieces. The little pieces. It's not it's the little kind of, pieces. This puff of black oh, yeah. dust. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You can't grind up tires without making a lot of dust. Yeah, I would think so. Yeah, exactly. Sure. But this is the big deal right now is that PFAS, which has become a yeah, kitchen table, yep. yeah, a kitchen table conversation, is also in these artificial turf fields. They are a series of harmful chemicals that will have come under that have come under intense scrutiny over the past few years due to their connection to increased cancer risk and their intense level of pollution in our environment. PFAS have been found in fields that utilize artificial turf and are considered a potential cause of cancer risk among players that come into contact with this synthetic surface. It is no surprise that PFAS is present in artificial turf since these substances have been used in a number of applications such as firefighting foam, water repellent clothing, food packaging, since they provide waterproofing and are exceptionally durable. These desirable traits have also become major issues since PFAS takes an exceptionally long time to break down and as a result has built up in the environment to a startling degree. PFAS have been referred to as forever chemicals as a result and now present a significant ecological and human health threat. You know, we've been on this, this issue for a while, talking mm. about the health mm -hmm. threats, talking about the health threats not only from the tires but from the the PFAS, which we've been on for a while. But you know what's going to finally make this change? Lawsuits. Well, that's, that, what they're, that's why this, is, this that's article. That's what's going to uh -huh. stop people Artificial from, turf cancer yeah. lawsuits was the name of this that's article. That's what's going to stop people right. from, make, from putting these yeah. fields down because, the, you know, the sports people really love these fields because they can play on it all the time. Rain, snow, doesn't matter. The, the sports managers and the field managers, not the players. Oh, I know the players are not the happy. The players really don't like it. It causes unusual injuries that take longer to heal and if you look, I mean, even that, the, you know, even if you look at these football games, the playoffs, they were just covered. The fields were covered in this black mess. It's yeah, unbelievable. Yeah. It's like it's like playing in filth. And you had that you had Odell Beckham Jr. who uh, had that injury right in the middle of the Super Bowl. It was a non-contact injury. Non-contact injury. All of a sudden, he kind of, you know, started limping around. Yep. Unbelievable. Okay. Okay, what else? All right, and then more about plastic, but we need to talk about plastic. Plastic we is talk a about plastic huge, every week. huge issue. This was written by Tatum McConnell. It's in Environmental Health News. And the title is, Every Stage of Plastic Production and Use is Harming Human Health. Plastic production is on track to triple by 2050. Yikes. A potential influx of hazardous materials that the earth and humans can't handle. Um, this is according to a new report from a commission on plastics and human health. This commission, which is a group of researchers organized by the Australian Foundation Mindaroo, the Scientific Center of Monaco, and Boston College, found plastics disproportionately harm low-income communities, people of color, and children. 
They are urging negotiators of the United Nations Global Plastics Treaty to take bold steps, such as capping plastic production, banning single-use plastics, and regulating the toxic chemicals added to the plastics. At fossil fuel extraction sites, and most plastics are made from fossil fuels like oil and natural gas, and plastic production facilities workers and surrounding communities are exposed to pollutants that can cause reproductive complications, such as premature births and low birth weights, lung cancer, diabetes and asthma, among many other illnesses. Use of plastic products can expose people to toxic chemicals, including phthalates, which are linked to brain development problems in children, and BPA, which is linked to heart attacks and neurological issues. At the end of the plastic supply chain are growing landfills that leach harmful materials into the environment and surrounding communities. These landfills are often found in poor countries described in the report as pollution havens. Holy cow. Yeah, this is, you know, 18 million children are working with electronic waste and not in this country, Mm -mm, right? No. In India and other places, Bangladesh, where we ship our, you know, our... Electronic waste. Our electronic waste and our plastics, exactly. Every time I see one of those ads that says, you know, get a new phone, I think, what's going to happen to the old phone? Right. And and where are all those toxic chemicals going to go? And who's going to be the poor, unfortunate kid? And the reason that we are in countries where we don't belong is because those countries are producing those those rare metals that we need for all these electronic products. Yeah. But anyway, okay, so now Dr. Phil Landrigan, who we know well, a pediatrician and director at the Boston College Global Observatory on Planetary Health and lead author of this report says, quote, the bottom line is that plastic is not nearly as cheap as we thought it was. It's just that the costs have been invisible. There needs to be a global cap on plastic production. This cap would allow some plastic production but prevent the anticipated growth of plastics in the coming years. Production is increasing in part because the fossil fuel industry is looking for new markets as rising demand for renewable energy could decrease the need for fuel. Roughly 35 to 40% of plastic goes into disposable single-use items and that fraction is expected to increase if the fossil fuel industry has anything to say about it. I'm going to write a song called Turn Off the Tap about stopping. About we have to stop making plastic, you know, in 90% of the cases. Yep. We just have to stop. People are going to have to put out their garbage in a, in a paper bag. Oh, right. my God. Plastic burning creates dioxins. We are all too familiar with what happened in Ohio. We've covered it here on the show, and it's, you know, practically... You know, the first news item on every broadcast for the past, what, two or three weeks? Yeah. It's a disaster. Yeah. Okay. All right. Thanks, Patty. You're welcome. We all love our technology, but it doesn't necessarily love us. We love to be connected everywhere all the time, but we don't really want the infrastructure that makes that possible to be located on our front yard or our kids' schoolyard or outside our apartment building. 
After all, there are more and more news reports and scientific studies that question the adequacy of federal safety guidelines for exposure to the microwave radiation that makes all that technology possible. The current FCC guidelines were adopted back in the 1990s based on a handful of lab experiments in the 1980s with monkeys and rats. That's where our current safety standards come from for all our wireless technology. All over the country, a debate is raging over how to accommodate the infrastructure necessary to make all our wireless gadgets work properly, but still protect the health, safety, aesthetics, and property values of people in the community. From New York to Los Angeles and small towns in between, government officials are wrestling with this problem, stymied in many cases by an outdated telecommunications law and a federal communications commission beholden to giant telecoms. So sometimes the telecom industry tries to just sneak one by. That seems to be the case in New York City, where there has been an invasion of giant wireless antenna structures that have appeared suddenly in neighborhoods without much public notice, and certainly not with public approval. It first came to my attention when I found out that there was a contract that New York City had entered into with CityBridge, which is a third-party vendor, to put in thousands of these 5G cell towers. That's Odette Wilkins, President and General Counsel of Wired Broadband, Inc., a nonprofit organization focusing on safe technology for the public. Odette has been a technology attorney for over 20 years, representing a number of multinational corporations in technology transactions. At first, the antennas in New York City were relatively small. They're calling them kiosks, Link 5G kiosks. Those are nine and a half foot structures. And they're supposed to be providing free Wi-Fi and other amenities, I guess, calling 911 and 311 and other things that are beneficial for New Yorkers. However, the financial model of the Link NYC did not work. It was based on advertising revenue, and New York City was supposed to get millions of dollars. That financial model did not work, and they came up with another financial model where there would be a multi-tenant structure with Wi-Fi. So it would include five bays of wireless infrastructure, multiple antennas in one structure. So there are five different bays. If you were to think of it as an apartment building, there are five different floors. And the top two floors would provide 5G. The next bottom two floors would provide 4G. And the first floor would be Wi-Fi. So it'd be five floors. And they think that this model will work better, but they slashed the guarantees to the city. That is what's supposed to happen. And it's kind of remarkable that with this model, they're going to have so many antennas concentrated on each of these cell towers that they are bound to make a lot more money with uh, telecommunications companies providing them with leasing fees. In the world of wireless infrastructure, there are the big telecoms like Verizon or AT&T or T-Mobile, and there are site developers like Crown Castle or Extinet. Site developers are basically speculators who try to figure out where the telecoms will want to put antennas and who go through the process of getting approvals for poles and antenna locations, which they can then rent to the telecoms. CityBridge is a site developer. They actually are putting in the structure and they're the ones 
who are basically, if you will, the landlord. And they will be leasing space to the telecom carriers. And then the telecom carriers will be paying City Bridge, and then City Bridge is going to be paying a certain amount to the city. So this is a way for the city to cash in on the demand for everything wireless everywhere all the time. A new revenue source, no cost up front, and hopefully a big payday down the road. A thing almost too good to be true. But in order to convince local communities to accept these giant 30-foot monstrosities, the city needs to show they're actually going to solve a problem, like a gap in service. OTI, which is the Office of Technology and Innovation, the lead agency in charge of this, has been presenting to the community boards as well as City Bridge. And they've been stating that there is a gap in service or they need to put in greater capacity for a future demand. So initially when they were being asked, when they said that there are gaps in service, the telecom carriers have told them that there's a gap in service. Well, initially when they were doing these presentations, they were being asked, where are the records of a gap in service? And they had none. Then they revised their presentation to say that, oh, this is to add in additional capacity for future demand. Well, how do you know where there's going to be future demand? And how do you know those locations? The gap in service argument took a major hit last year from a federal court when the judge ruled that the 1996 Telecommunications Act only applied to talk and text, not the kind of elaborate 5G services telecoms want to offer. Suddenly, the legal foundation and the rationale for the giant cell towers vanished. In terms of a gap in service, the burden is on the telecom carriers to show that there's a gap in service. If they cannot show that there's a gap in service, then they don't have federal preemption. They don't have federal imprimatur to come into a neighborhood. And so far, they have shown no records of a gap in service. And as a matter of fact, many people are saying, we have plenty of service. I don't have a problem with my internet connection. I don't have a problem with my broadband. And so they really have not proven a gap in service. And yet they feel that they have the right to come into neighborhoods, even uh, without their permission. It was time for a new strategy for City Bridge, and it didn't take long for them to come up with one, closing the digital divide. The justification that they're using is that they're saying that there are about 3.4 million New Yorker City uh, residents who are lacking broadband. But the problem is it begs the issue as to why is there a difference? Is it because they cannot afford the broadband or is it due to lack of infrastructure? And they don't seem to have an answer to that. The answer is clear enough to anyone who has studied the issue. The solution to the digital divide is not to allow private companies to sell inferior wireless broadband connections to underserved communities, but instead to connect those communities with fiber optic broadband solutions. Fiber optics is obviously the superior choice. It surpasses wireless in terms of capacity, safety, security, and it's it's really the best service. And that's why the federal government has prioritized fiber over wireless. And even former FCC chair Tom Wheeler said that we should have a fiber first policy and wireless only as a last resort. So even though the gap in service argument is no longer a valid excuse, 
And even though pretty much everyone agrees that wireless broadband is not the long-term solution to closing the digital divide, CityBridge is moving ahead, constructing new giant antennas all over the streets of New York City. And in some of the narrow streets in residential areas, the antennas are dangerously close to homes and apartments. The proximity can be as close as 10.6 feet, and they could actually even be closer as long as they notify or get the consent of the community boards. I'm not sure that they actually even need consent. They may just need to notify the community boards. And these are 32 feet structures, so three stories high. So if there's a structural failure of these cell towers, where are they going to fall? <laughs> so there has to be a fall zone around them so that nobody gets hurt. But it's 10.6 feet close to someone's home. It could crash into somebody's window. It could crash into a school because they're putting these in, they want to put these in front of schools. And it can crash onto pedestrians on the street. And going back to our discussion of exposure safety limits, who's looking at the cumulative exposure of all those 5G, 4G, and Wi-Fi antennas, all emitting radiation at the same time? Each carrier may be able to certify that its radiation is within the old FCC limits, but what about the combined exposure? When I asked them what antennas are going to be placed there, what is the strength of those antennas? What's the model number? Who's the manufacturer of those antennas? What is the entire plan for building these out in the city? They cannot tell us, it seems, where the fiber build-out infrastructure is. They're saying, oh, look at these free services that are being provided to New Yorkers, but they can't seem to tell us where the fiber build-out is. What's going on in New York City is not an isolated situation. All over the country, people are beginning to push back against the unfettered deployment of wireless infrastructure, and for a multitude of good reasons. Some are concerned about surveillance. Cell towers are tracking everyone who has a phone. Others are concerned about privacy, because wireless connections can be easily hacked. Others are more concerned with safety, fire, health, and cost. If you live in New York City, there are some things you can do. You can certainly get in touch with your city council person. They need to be involved because many of the city council people in New York City have gotten involved. And also with the state assembly and state senators. I know that Rebecca Seawright has been very prominently opposed to these 5G towers. And also get in touch with your community boards because it's the community boards who are actually reviewing this information. And OTI has a directive from the Public Design Commission to go to the communities and to obtain community input. That's really the vehicle through which that you can do it. Now, community boards are advisory, but we have now nine community boards who are on record opposing this uh, in terms of disapprovals or moratoria, and the opposition is growing. So when we get a critical mass of community boards, then I think the city realize, will probably realize that this is no longer advisory, but that this is a mandate for the city, if you will, uh, to sit down with everyone and to reopen the agreements and to really take another look. Don't sell our streets to 5G towers.
Odette Wilkins, President and General Counsel of Wired Broadband, Inc., a nonprofit organization focusing on safe technology for the public. You can see pictures of the antennas and learn more at wiredbroadband.org. That's going to do it for our show today. If you enjoyed this episode of Green Street News, we hope you'll follow us on whatever podcast platform you like. And tell your friends about the show, won't you? Special thanks to our guest, Odette Wilkins, our engineer, David McAllister, our news editor, Ellen Weiniger, our webmaster, Donna Moss, and our marketing director, Patricia Bridges. I'm Doug Wood. Patty and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Street News. Thanks for listening.